<clears throat> to play or not to play. Um, my name's Jonathan, and this is the Snakes Cast, the podcast for people who don't know as much about games as they'd like to know. This week, we follow up on our last episode about theater and board games with a board game about some guy named William Shakespeare who wrote a play or something. Welcome back to the Snakes Cast. With me again this week, David Kingsmill. Hello. And Scott Moyle. Good day. So, apparently there's this new board game by Hervé Regal, and the title of the game is Shakespeare, who was Shakespeare. apparently an English playwright back in the 16th century. Have you ever heard of this guy? He was kind of a big deal. Yeah, there's, I read something about him somewhere. Read a book, Moriarty. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought Shakespeare was supposed to be seen, not read. Oh, you got me there. You know what? It was really Edward De Vere anyway. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> so for the benefit of any listeners who might not have particularly cared about or enjoyed studying this topic in school, uh, in you know, about 25 words or less, why is Shakespeare still popular today? Shakespeare took stories that were already kicking around and reformatted them with characterization and dialogue that has yet to be improved on in depth, in clarity, in the multitudes of possibility contained in those texts. People are going to be doing Hamlet until the heat death of the universe, and people are still going to be coming up with new ways to think about the things Hamlet says about life and death. Not a lot of other writers give you that. Do you concur? <laughs> I don't know. He took my 25 words. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much everything there is to say. It's the, the beautiful language, uh, relatable stories. Uh, I mean, there's the seven basic plots, the concept that you can reduce every story down into one of these seven basic plots. And I think he's hit pretty much every single one of them in at least one play. Um, I I have to confess to being a little bit more of a Marlowe fan than I am a Shakespeare fan, but I What's that? there's I I struggle with iambic pentameter for a start, ah, but I so the meter then yeah, but I'm also a big I just I I think I like Marlowe's subject matter more. Feed me a Faustus every day over um, something else, but I do think that uh, you know you can't disrespect the work that Shakespeare did and what he's done is timeless and wonderful. Uh, you just have to look at something like the Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet and see where you can take all that text and put it into an utterly different setting. Uh, and it's very easy to understand why something that flexible is lasting. So in a way, it's kind of surprising that it's, uh, that it's taken this long for us to see a tabletop game, a modern tabletop game that, uh, that uses this as its subject. Well, there are a couple of others. There's Shakespeare the Bard game. Uh, okay. Which is, it's, <laughs> I have not heard of this. It's, I mean, it's kind of a, it's a roll and move with some set collection and a, a few other ideas. But sometimes you have to recite a monologue from Shakespeare um, from memory. They package a few in the game in case, but if you play it with the only people I've played it with, everybody <laughs> just does their audition piece. <laughs> um, there's Council of Verona, which is a card right. game about oh, uh, goodness, yes. trying to sort things out in in the Verona of Romeo and Juliet uh, with secret objectives. Um, you know, people want the, the apothecary wants lots of people exiled to Mantua. Um, I think Mercutio just wants some chaos, so I think he just wants people to get killed in fights. Romeo uh, and Juliet want to be together. Right. Tybalt wants to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Montague and Capulet both want more of their faction than the other faction. 
um, on the council, etc., etc. Anyway, it was also the uh, the Kill Shakespeare game, right? the board game of the comic. Yeah, it's sort of a, a Crisis on Infinite Shakespeare's multiverse where uh, all the heroes and villains get together to hunt or save or destroy or discover the uh, wizard William Shakespeare who wrote them all into being. It's okay. sort of an area control game, I think. <laughs> well, uh, it, here's the thing, though. Uh, I understand that, uh, well, our audience should understand at least, that you picked up a copy of the latest game, Shakespeare, and were, I think, a bit more interested in the idea of being a person running a theater company in Elizabethan England, desperately wrangling actors and costume designers and stuff instead of being the characters in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Being, I suppose, you know, being a theater director yourself, I guess that kind of... Uh... I, I care a little bit about the side of it where you're herding cats and trying to get the show together. It spoke to me. David, does, does the idea of something where you get to be the playwright instead of the character appeal to you? The concept appeals to me very much, actually. Uh, a little while ago in the cafe, Scott and I were chatting and we were just looking over the wall and came across Colosseum. And mm. he said to me, this is a game you should play because it's basically about putting a play on. Uh, and then he got Shakespeare and went, no, this is a game you should play. <laughs> uh, and actually, both of them intrigued me, but uh, and kind of for different reasons, I think. Um, but Bread it, and circuses in two different flavors. Yeah, but, it, you know, it's I'm, I'm a novelist, and I have absolutely adored playing Once Upon a Time. Mm. Uh, so you give, you give me a storytelling, you know, it's no secret to those who've ever heard my first podcast that my favorite game is Arkham Horror. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's because of the storytelling in that. So the game that allows me to be the storyteller but doing something slightly different, it, it's a natural appeal. I have yet to play this, though, so I'm very intrigued to hear what you guys have to say about it. Or indeed, I imagine you have yet to play any game where you play a person who tells stories instead of actually being the person who tells the stories. Yeah, it's an idea I've played with in my own head because I've got a couple of game designs of my own that I've got going on, but I've never quite been able to get my brain around doing something quite like this. So I'm legitimately fascinated to know what this does. Right, let's look into it then. Okay, let's set the scene here. Game's on the table. Scott, what are we seeing? You are looking at a bunch of Eurogamey components. Everybody's got some discs and some cylinders in their player color, and everybody's got a dashboard representing how things are going in their playhouse. Um, and in the center is a board tracking everybody's progress on a few tracks. Prestige, which are the uh, victory points of the game, as well as each individual person's uh, progress on Act 1, 2, and 3 of their play. Um, and along there are sort of consequences for uh, sort of annotated, annotated consequences for progress or failure to progress on each of those act tracts and so on. How do you actually affect those? Because that's, I mean, there's a lot of things in there that I'm hearing. This is what I'm trying to do in real life. But the well, act tracks, there's there's like three of them for the it's for the script, right? Yes. How well, good your script is. The development is for... of the play. I, mm-hmm. I think what I saw there, what I think they were trying to tell as a story there, is that you're working on Act One, both the dialogue and the staging of it simultaneously. It is a, uh, it is a game about having six days to get a play from birth to performance for the Queen. <laughs> so I think there are probably oh. rewrites on the fly. <laughs> um, the, uh, the other thing you're going to see on the table, and this will contextualize a lot of it, is characters. Right. You start with a couple of characters uh, sort of right on your dashboard as part of that component. Uh, your playwright, um, a very young and handsome-looking William Shakespeare, Falstaff. Um, the, he's the only actor you have. He's the only actor with. you start out right. with. And I think they did that because Sir John Falstaff 
you know, at least in name, shows up in more of Shakespeare's plays than any other character. Not to mention he's a fabulous character. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's extremely memorable, and he, should, he's, he can be tragic, and he can be comic, and, you know, there's almost no play that won't benefit from a, a funny, bearded, fat guy. So you've got a Falstaff, and it's not that you have that character, it's that you have a guy in your company who can play that type, I think is what they're saying. And then from there, the rest of the characters you're hiring are Romeo and Lady Macbeth and Beatrice and Puck and Titania. And again, I don't think you're meant to be hiring those people. I think you're meant to be, you know, when you hire Hamlet, well, you got that guy, Richard Burbage, that the role of Hamlet was written for. Um, he's, you, you've got the guy who can play a Hamlet kind of character in the show you're developing. So that obviously makes a lot of sense with the characters, but the concept is everybody their own individual playwright, or are you all supposed to be Shakespeare and there's some sort of, is there any collaboration at all? You are all a playwright, which is why the game talks about your your Shakespeare character as the playwright, not as Shakespeare. The one... Although it says Shakespeare on your actual play. It does say Shakespeare where, where it would say a character name for anyone so else. That's what yeah. I was wondering, because I was looking over your shoulders while the two of you were playing, and I saw Shakespeare on both boards, raised an eyebrow, and figured I'd have that conversation another day. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, the idea is that I'm kind of my Shakespeare and you're your Shakespeare. Um, Jonathan and I decided pretty One of us quickly, is the Earl of Oxford. Yeah. Right, oh, you're monsters. Um, <laughs> we decided pretty quickly that uh, that I was Shakespeare and Jonathan was Ben Johnson. Did you pick Ben Johnson? Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, um, then I'm Marlow when we play. There, there we go. go. Um, the uh, I, I think it's a better bet, and I, I wish they had just done this. I would love to see an expansion. Though I can't imagine they'll do one because uh, who but me would buy it. <laughs> but I would love to see an expansion where uh, where one of us is Shakespeare with with the uh, Lord Chamberlain's man and one of us is Ben Johnson and one of us is Marlowe and maybe, I don't know, Middleton's the fourth one or mm. whatever. The uh, That would also loan Nash. itself to... Yeah, Nash could be. Um, this would loan itself well to player powers, right? Shakespeare would be good at certain... Maybe he's the generalist player power sure. character, whereas Marlowe is good at big tragedy and Johnson is good at court comedy and that influences which kind of characters they could hire. Anyway, this is a pipe dream, but I would love I'm to in. see them do that. <laughs> Um, but what you're doing is hiring characters and then using them as uh, as spots to place your action markers, activating those characters to... So it's a worker placement game. It's it's fundamentally kind of a worker placement game. Um, but I've got my workers and you've got your workers. And, right. Uh, and, 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 and I've got my board yeah. and you've got your board. And I can't use your spaces and you can't use my spaces. Okay. And, but I mean, we are competing for a central resource of available characters. Which it's, gives us I, more spaces. Oh, I'm seeing a lot of Legacy Testament of Duty in this, actually. Kind of. There's, there's some feeling of that. What, what pushes it forward? Because you're talking about acts here. Uh, so it's activating the characters that makes progress on the act. Some of them will have a yellow, blue, or red quill for acts one, two, and three. Mm. Um, and activating them will move your marker on that act track. Um, some of them will have multiple, uh, multiple icons. Some of them will have white uh, quills. Shakespeare just has two white quills. He adds two steps to whichever act needs some help because he's, <laughs> he's versatile and good at just getting some words on the page. Um, You've also got uh, costumers who will dress your actors up. Mm-hmm. And, Set uh, designers. Who will, in, in, like in the middle of your player board, you've got this, this space for your set. Right. And putting various different things on there can get you stuff. It's, there, there's a lot of moving parts. What in union do they all belong to? 
Oh, it's the 16th century. <laughs> what? I, um, I actually didn't give my costumer a day off for the entire game. I think she died. At the that end. happened to my set designer, actually. <laughs> oh, Which dear. is accurate to the production so model. So, job opening for uh, Scott. Yeah. Um, what, what's the ending of the game? How, what's the goal? Uh, you have six rounds, six days, at the end of which the queen is coming to see all of your stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's where you sort of, you score it up, you... Uh, you figure out how you did on each act track, how basically how good you made part one, two, and three of your of your play. Um, but along the way, there are two uh, scoring rounds, uh, dress rehearsals on day four and six. You're going to check which of your actors have complete costumes, meaning you've set collected uh, three bits of costume on them. Those people, uh, those those fully costumed actors, will loan their dress rehearsal bonus to your play, um, which is sort of the thing you're. Doing well at dress rehearsal is extremely important to doing well uh, at the end of mm. the uh, the week. That will that's a great way to sort of boost your act tracks and get some more stuff on your board that will eventually be worth points. You also have secret objectives during the game. One well, you the, might have secret objectives. Yeah, I, I had plenty of secret objectives. <laughs> I, I, I had none of them. I didn't care about the queen. Right. One of the things you can do with your action markers is visit Queen Elizabeth, and she will either give you some money, which you're going to need to pay your people. Or she will give you a secret objective. You draw three, choose one, and it's Elizabeth saying, oh, I'd like a play with Falstaff, which is how we have Merry Wives of Windsor. Or <laughs> her going, wouldn't it be lovely to see a great big set on your stage? Or it's her saying, you know, it would be worth a lot to me if you... Where's and, the bear? Yeah, where's the bear, exactly. <laughs> um, one of my secret objectives was fire someone. Um, oh! I got to fire someone without paying them, which was terrific. Anyway, you'll get some extra <laughs> prestige points for... Um, for those secret objectives you've collected, and then at the end of it, you're going to go through, take all the money you've made through the game, through doing various things, figure out if you can pay all of your humans. Everybody you can't pay guts your prestige two points, because then you're that company that doesn't pay its actors. Right. And, uh, and at the end of that mess, the greatest prestige score wins. Okay, so here's one question, which is, because what I'm hearing right now as a fairly hardcore Emerithrash gamer is point salad. Is this point salad, or oh, yeah. is it just is it everything is it you do is going to contribute to getting you points somehow? Right, you have to sort of prioritize. Am I going to try and get points this way? Am I going to try and get points that way? And when you and I played, I won by a point. Yeah. Um, I went hog wild on hiring actors and costuming them, and it, and then had I think I had a few pieces of trash sitting on my stage as a set, but basically <laughs> no. it was it was it was a minimalist. Uh, also, your script was absolutely. Airtight. My script was all three ballin'. of I your acts all were straight out to the end. Nice. Whereas, meanwhile, my script was terrible. <laughs> it was garbage on all three fronts. Uh, I didn't have much of a cast. There, uh, some of the costumes had lots of jewelry and bling on it, though. Uh, you built a sweet fort. <laughs> I bet I bet the most awesome set that uh, that anybody ever saw. I was basically doing a Roland Emmerich movie. <laughs> and uh, so you're not going to be able to do everything. You just have to do the things that you choose to do very, very well. Yes, just scrambling and doing uh, production cost triage sound familiar to you as a producer of independent theater? Somewhat terrifyingly, so yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I suppose the big question is, what did you guys think? Oh gosh, I loved it, and I can't wait to play it again. <laughs> it uh, the mechanics told a great story, and I felt like I won not because I sort of hit the mechanics super hard. I felt like I won because I engaged the story mm. and just did the things that made sense within the the world of the game. It it was full of cute little Easter eggs to me. It was super fun to have made a play that uh, because of who I had cast, I decided I had sent the Romeo Lady Macbeth 
Beatrice love triangle into Puck and Titania's forest with uh, with occasional unrelated side scenes from Falstaff. <laughs> and so it, it, from both a mechanical perspective and a story perspective, that game was just a win for me across the board. So you just basically wrote the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged. Kind of, yeah. It Fabulous. Was, I like it. Was, I, okay, I'm sold. I had a hoot. <laughs> Jonathan, what uh, about you? Don't, don't jump in just yet, David. Um, how comfortable are you with Euros that have a lot of interweaving elements that you have to consider every single turn? I think it depends on the nature of the game. Some people can, like Eric Lang seems to be able to produce Euros that I enjoy because he themes them just well enough and this is a theme I like. It is so a wonderfully themed thing. I'm um, curious to know where this one's going. Here's my problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, my problem is that if you want to play this game and play it well, there's an enormous amount of calculation and planning and if-then gates that you have to go through in your head to be able to make the appropriate choices. You have to be comfortable with playing fast and loose, as both of us were, because neither of us knew what the hell we were doing. It was our first time playing anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but even as an experienced player, you know, either you do a lot of calculation and reduce it to a very mathy uh, mechanical exercise, or you accept that you have about as much control over your fate here as you would if you were playing Tales of the Arabian Nights. Mm. And which is a game that I like because of the fact that it produces ridiculous stories largely at random. Right. Uh, this does the same thing, except it's a lot more difficult to play. Right. It's a lot more difficult to learn. There's a lot more stuff you have to keep track of. And consequently, it's a lot easier to feel dumb when you miss something that in retrospect seems obvious, but only once you actually put all these pieces into play and realize, okay, because that affects that this way and that does that to this. this. So that thing that I just did was useless two turns ago. Okay, fine. Oh, I'm intrigued now. Because you and I have a very similar game taste a lot of the time, I feel. And yet I've done most of the jobs that this game includes. I've never costumed people. That goes a very long way. And if you're playing it in the proper spirit, you know, if you're doing uh, what Scott did, and you're just saying, you're just sort of riding along with it, and, okay, this is what my character would do, rather than this is the correct move uh, to to win, then I think it's incredible. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I'm going to have to give this one a go for sure, Scott. I think that's a, a game date at some point. Yeah, I, I'm really intrigued because I know I can teach this to people who, who like a Euro. Um, who yeah, like who would you recommend it. this for? Well, I think if you like mapping out a Euro game, you might enjoy this. Uh, but I don't enjoy that, so I can't really speak for the people who do. <laughs> um, I'm you, hearing Seven Wonders in the description. Is that sort of a... Like, in terms of the quantity of things that are going on? Uh, more, no? more comparable to something like uh, Kalos, I guess. Okay. Yeah, okay. It, I mean, it felt um, it felt about as brain-burning as Ginkopolis to me. Yeah. Okay. Um, which okay. Is I'd say that, that, that's like. a fair comparison. Um, Ginkopolis actually is an interesting parallel. Um, I taught it to a non-gamer friend of mine who... Uh, who's a giant urban planning nerd. Um, and so I was able to explain most of the mechanics in Ginkopolis through, uh, through that yeah, paradigm. Build, fact, building she, a city in the trees with all these sort of And um, she was explaining that to me. Oh, of course that costs. You had to break a zoning law. You had to go bribe someone. Um, <laughs> and made perfect sense to her. So I think I'm really excited to put this game in front of my theater friends who know what it is to to scramble and decide if you're going to spend your budget on your set or your costume, because no, you can't have both. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Who who look at, you know, can I hire one more actor? Oh, they'd help the play a lot, but I don't know if I can write in one more character. Yeah. Um, I think those kinds of decisions uh, the will be mechanically brainable by non-gamer theater friends because they 
because they feel so tightly in line with the real-world equivalent. Mm. Is this appropriate for Board Game Cafe? Mm, no more or less than any other chewy Euro. I think the, the thematic appeal is pretty niche. Um, I, I certainly, I know why I'm excited about it, but I can certainly see that being pretty narrow. I think the, I think the mechanics of it would be, uh, a real pain to teach absent the, the narrative and the theme. Mm. And often when I'm teaching a Euro at Snakes, I find myself having to disengage the theme just to get through the mechanics. And, mm, yeah. uh, Right when I teach Puerto Rico, and I, I like teaching Puerto Rico, I think I've got a good handle on it. But I'm certainly not trying to get anyone excited about like racist colonial shenanigans. <laughs> um, I I don't know that I can use this game to get people excited about theater production in 16th century London. And so I think from a teachability perspective, it, with an audience that isn't guaranteed that theater nerd in, no. It's not a great cafe. How does it rank up in terms of like openness to non-theatre people with Colosseum, since I've mentioned it? Um, and that's getting reprinted this year, I think. So the two of them it, are going... I believe so. That's exciting. I haven't played Colosseum in a couple of years now, so what I'd like to do is... I, I'm looking forward to playing to replaying Colosseum, playing Shakespeare a few more times, and sort of seeing how they stack up against each other. Uh, Colosseum has a, a little more blatantly obvious set collection stuff, um, there's a little, there's a countdown of the, uh, the Roman emperor is wandering towards your building and will want to show when he gets there. So the mechanics are, I think, a little more transparent in Colosseum. Right. It's a days of wonder game and the interface kind of falls in line with that. And that's it for this week. If there's a game you'd like to see in the spotlight, tweet it to us at SnakesCast or post it on the Snakes and Lattes Facebook page. Good night, sweet David and Scott. Anon exits pursued by Beth. The Snakes cast is produced by P.T. Douglas. Music is provided by Ben Sound. The opinions expressed on the show belong to the people in it and not the company behind it. Until next time, remember, the game is not afoot. It is a game. It's a game.